0: Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear, bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Mr. D, back here again in kind of an odd position. Yes, I'm doing something on uh, US 1 material, so 7th grade or early 11th grade stuff. So this is a bit out of the ordinary. Um, You've been listening to Mr. Christmas for the last two episodes. And this episode is entitled The Road to Revolution, because what I'm going to try to do here is take you through... Really my favorite time period in history, um, about 1750 all the way up until 1775. Not that I don't like the Revolution as much, but um, I grew up on the French Union War. And so much of Western New York and Central New York where, where we live is, uh, is 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 the home of this history. So you can go check out some of this stuff in your own backyard. Most notably Fort Niagara, where I worked for seven years. So, I mean, this stuff is, is right in your own backyard, this history. And it is fascinating. So I'm going to do my best to make this show... Um, as time efficient and truly as short as possible But I may get long winded So here's your fair warning And um, you know I, I do believe as Fred Anderson said in his book uh, The war that made America The French and New War made the United States And really put the founding basis I'm going to prove to you here in the show For the American Revolution for the United States so I'm going to do the best I can. I'll be leaving stuff out. So if I have any friends from Fort Niagara who listen to this show, um, it's a crash course. This stuff is for students who go over the unit. Um, I'll throw some big ideas and some details in there because, you know, uh, I'm also influenced right now because I'm reading Gordon S. Woods, the American Revolution history right now. And it really is such a great work. Um, so I'm, I'm really in the time period at the moment. So I'll do my best to keep this nice and tight and not too long. So here we go. Hopefully under 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, Mr. Crispin left off the discussion about the English colonies. In the first episode, and um, he, excuse me, the last episode he left off with that on, and he discussed some of the earlier colonies. Before that, the Dutch, the Spanish, and the arch nemesis of the the, the English, the British, in North America, are the French. The French are the arch enemy. They're the ones that were that the British are largely competing with. They'll be competing with the Spanish and other groups too. But the French in this story are kind of the, the the arch nemesis here, and there's a couple reasons for that. Um, the number one reason is, you know, for the colonists and um, the British crown, the French are Catholic, so there's, you know, you've already got, and you know, the, the British being Anglican Protestant, um, so there's already a disagreement right there over religion, something that was very fundamental at, at the core to these people and important, so... That's where we kind of love the story. Now, the French Indian War, in my opinion, is the number one cause of the American Revolution for a couple of reasons. It's not just the taxes. Um, like I said, Fred Anderson, he's kind of the historian, the guy on this work, and you know, he ent- there's, no, there's a reason he entitled his book, This is the War That Made America. So, the French Indian War something I know it's a part of a larger global conflict known as the Seven Years' War that was actually all over the world. It was fought in the Caribbean, it was fought in Europe um, and other locations. So, it Just in North America, though, we call this the French-Indian War. So, really, it's just the theater of one of the world's first world wars, if you think about it. And it actually begins in kind of an interesting way with uh, somebody very important to the United States. A young 22-year-old George Washington is sent to the Ohio country, and that's where this whole thing is going to be disputed. And the Ohio country is a vague term. Part of this technically will encompass some of western New York, like southwestern New York, Pennsylvania, where Ohio is, um, below Ohio kind of Kentucky – but the story traditionally where this is going to begin is kind of in you know eastern ohio western pa is where kind of the heart of this happens um and the british and the french keep coming into contact they're sort of bumping into each other interacting with native americans and native americans i want to point out are going to play a huge role in the story and in my opinion um kind of one of the deciding roles in this story so washington's a young 22 and he he goes out there and his orders are to you know deliver this message to the french um this is you know the crown's territory you're not supposed to be here and kind of work it out he really doesn't have orders to fire or to attack or anything like that to get violent um but George Washington's a young officer for the British here, and he's going to lose control of his force. And he's with a group of Native Americans um, known they are part of the Mingo Nation. And the the, the Native Americans as a whole in the story have what we call agency. They are playing the European powers off of each other. Um, they are not going to be passive in this. They are driving policy. And I would argue, as I'm going to get to in a little bit, they kind of tip the war in the balance. Um they kind of tip the balance of the war, excuse me, <laughs> tip the balance of the war here uh, in 1759. So he loses control of his um, his men and the Native American allies he's with, and the Native Americans kind of, you know, being the ones that uh, kind of spring this 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 whole thing and are kind of the driving force when they get there. Um, nobody knows who fires the first shot, but the British open fire along with their Native American allies, and uh, the French are killed and and. They're not even um, taking prisoners, which in this kind of warfare is not something to be proud of and is actually very frowned upon. It's kind of gentleman warfare. It's also been called limited warfare. So Washington retreats to Fort Necessity, and this Fort Necessity basically is he retreats. He finds this open area, which is terrible ground. He builds a wooden stockade. Um, It's downhill. The water's running in. The weather's terrible. The French and their native allies attack and pretty much force Washington to surrender. Uh, They force him to sign this agreement where he's going to admit fault for this, and when the British learn of this, they're not happy. Um, So in 1755, the British will return at the head of a regular army. These are British troops from Britain. These are not colonists or provincials that Washington had taken out the year before. So they got a bit of a cocky swagger. The British Empire at this time in the British military was very, very good. Extremely good. Their land forces, I would argue, only second to that of uh, Prussia's, probably. So, in 1755, the British will return to the same location-ish in the Ohio Country. Now, the Ohio Country is very. Um, why do they want it? Well, it's great. It's great land for farming. Um, great for the fur trade. More importantly, though, that's really what they're interested in. The fur trade is very, very lucrative for both the French and the British, and they want to control it. And that's really, you know, part of the reason that they're fighting over this area in the first place. So Major General Edward Braddock is going to return at the head of a pretty significant force of British regulars to march into this area where um, the, the the French have constructed a, a fort that will become known as Fort Duquesne near modern Pittsburgh. Um, and Braddock is going to march in there, and he's going to make some very poor decisions. Braddock's defeat, as we will know, it, it kind of is sold as this ambush, like guerrilla warfare style thing. It's really not. Um, the one mistake that Braddock does make is that he does not, care to listen to the native allies Uh, near him, the the Shawnee, the Delaware, anyone, some of them actually go off and join the the French and help them and inform them of the British coming. So what becomes clear in Braddock's defeat, number one, is that native intelligence is so important. Um, A lot of where this war is fought, especially in an area like Central and Western York, that's Back country, that's Native American-controlled land. If you want to move through there, you've got to have the approval of the Native people or the friendship of them. So that's why this stuff will become so important because um, the the Native Americans for both sides will become the eyes and ears of the army, their intelligence. And that is so important because warfare, especially at this time, it's like a blind chess match. You need to know where the pieces are. And Native intelligence serves for that. So these Native allies are so important. That's why the Iroquois or the Haudenosaunee will actually tip the balance of this war uh, later on down the road, I'll get to that. So Braddock is defeated and absolutely massacred. Not far outside of Fort Duquesne, uh, he himself is killed in the fighting. And actually, George Washington leads kind of the rear guard retreat and does a does a pretty good job. Um, it's one thing Washington was very good at is getting an army out of a bad situation and keeping it somewhat intact and it will serve him really well in the American revolution down the road. So eventually though, I'm going to have to skip what was going to break my heart. I'm skipping over much of the war, but by 1759, um, in 1760, the British kind of gained the upper hand. Things did not go well in 1755, as you just saw 56 or 57 for the British in this war. Eventually the British are going to get serious. Um, They're going to pay more attention to Native intelligence. They're going to put their guy, Sir William Johnson, on that and others and try to uh, sway some of the Native American nations, most notably the Iroquois, over to their side. So in 1759, the Iroquois actually choose the British in the alliance, not because of anything Johnson did or the British um, gift-giving. Gift-giving was a practice. of getting Native American allies to your side uh, in their culture that was kind of seen as beneficial. And, you know, it wasn't because of the gift-giving or William Johnson's relationship with the, the Iroquois. It really was because if the British win the war, the Iroquois, or the Haudenosaunee as they prefer to be called themselves, uh, would be in a much more advantageous position politically if the British win than if the French. The French have their other allies— Um, and the French are trying to court the Iroquois by the way too but the French have a lot of their other allies like you know the Huron and the Algonquin who are kind of arch rivals of the, the Iroquois. So if the French win, the Iroquois will be in a much worse position than if the British win. They kind of see that by 1759. They pick a side, they go with the British, and it, it really helps the British win the war. But really, the British also do much better in this conflict because they start spending tons of money. In the beginning, they were a little stingy with the cash they would hand out to provincials and uh, colonial troops to raise supplies and funding money. Um, So uh, William Pitt comes in and changes that, along with some other people, and they just start throwing cash at this. So remember that, and that's another reason why they do so well. And the Treaty of Paris is signed in 1763, and to make this brief, um, France will lose this conflict in North America and in other parts of the world too. Um, And they would give up all territory in North America, their claim to the Ohio, Canada. Everything And they will keep only Haiti, which was a major sugar producer and kind of like a token that, you know, hey, France, we're sorry you lost, but you get to keep that. So here's why the French New War is so important. Number one, and there's a couple, I'm going to lay out kind of a list of how this caused the revolution. Number one, it creates the debt that would later force the British to create taxes. Um, which will lead to the revolution the british spent a ton of money as i just said so they see that you know we spent this money to you know keep the colony safe they should have to share in paying the taxes and paying off this debt um number two it showed the need in the minds of british officials that they needed to create a much better and tighter leadership structure um in the colonies things that kind of run um loosey-goosey and it's called salutary neglect that kind of concept um Things have been kind of loosey-goosey with the colonies, and the colonies have kind of been running themselves a little in more independently. But the struggle that the French saw in the French-Indian War, um, the struggles the British Empire saw there, they felt that they needed to kind of gain a tu- rein these colonies in a little bit. Um, and when they try to do that, the colonists are like, whoa, what's going on here? Um, the colonists were very proud to be British, especially in 1763, when this thing's over, they are so proud to be British, they feel like they're partners in empire, as um, I believe Fred Anderson coined that, and they see themselves as partners in empire, and they're proud of it. They're proud to be British. They're proud to be um, Protestant religion, British subjects. So that's, that's very important to point out. So that's number, now number three, uh, it created the proclamation of 1763 the British see that they need to restrict westward settlement to avoid violent conflict with Western settlers and Native Americans. Now, before I develop that more in depth, I just want to just point something out, and this is, again, I know I keep referencing Fred Anderson, but he is the kind of the the best historian I've read in a lot of this stuff. The Seven Years' War created such a vast empire that Britain could not effectively regulate it in a cost-effective manner. Basically, the victory in the Seven Years' War you know, that again, that's the global conflict the French War is a part of in North America, their victory in the Seven Years' War was the silver bullet for the American Revolution and the birth of the United States. By creating such a vast empire with so many territories that would require so many troops and so much money to regulate and rein in, it created something that the British could not maintain over a long period of time, so essentially their victory creates some serious problems. And the Proclamation of 1763, which I mentioned earlier, that forbade all colonial movement west of the Appalachian Mountains. So you're thinking like kind of like Kentucky, you know, Western PA era, uh, area. And Britain basically didn't want to have to throw a ton of cash at constantly policing the area, preventing violence between settlers and native peoples. Um, it would cost too much money, too much violence. They actually saw the colonists as like runaway crazy problems um, because they kept pushing on to Native American lands. They kept moving west. I mean, the colonists, one of the main reasons they want to fight in the French Indian War and colonists will fight as provincial troops for the British. They will help out. Um, one of the main reasons they're fighting is they want this land in the west. Um, they want, you know, in the Ohio country, in Kentucky, in Western PA, in Western New York, they want this land. They want to farm it. They want to live there. Uh, large landowners like George Washington and Ben Franklin want to buy up that land and sell it to smaller farmers. That's called land speculation. So these people, after the French Indian War is won, they're like, all right, here we go. And then when the British slap the proclamation line on because they don't want to have to put all those resources towards these Colonists, and to be honest with you, colonists pushed west, and they did not care about um, running Native Americans, and that was there's a lot of violence that occurred in the frontier. The frontier was seen as this thing. The British was such a headache to them. They did not want to regulate it. They didn't want to spend the cash, um, and they certainly did not want any more problems there. So they figure, we'll draw this line, we'll police that line, and that's it. So do not cross that line, colonists, please. But the problem we're going to see is this is the message that the colonists didn't want to hear. You know, the colonists thought they were partners in empire of the British. We're proud to be British. And when the British send this message of, you know, don't cross this line, the colonists simply just don't listen. They they cross the line. They do not uh, adhere to the, to the rule of the Proclamation of 1763. They, they move west past the mountains. They come into conflict with Native Americans, and the headaches start. Um, and one of the big ones you see is, and this kind of, the overlap is a little complicated. Is Pontiac's Rebellion in 1763? It actually began before the proclamation line was drawn. And uh, Pontiac was a member of the Ottawa nation who hoped to expel the British from the former French territory and kind of create a, an area where Native Americans could, you know, have um, their, their independence free from the European powers. And this will see, you know, they'll take some forts, some Western posts in the French territory, but eventually um, the British are able able to, to sort of quell that rebellion. Pontiac will be killed eventually. So... But uh, this, this demonstrates, you know, we talk a lot about the taxes and, and that story of like the Sons of Liberty, the Boston Tea Party, which I'm going to tell that story. But in my opinion, the Proclamation of 1763 is really the thing that kicks it all off. And I, I would argue it's, it's a symbolic message to the colonists that, listen, you are second class citizens. We got to rein you people in. And when the colonists look at the situation, they're they're upset a lot of them are upset by this because you know again we thought we were going to be able to move west we thought this was part of the deal we thought we were equals with you and the message begins to come clear over and over the british don't see them as partners in empire the british see them as those second-class citizens and i think that that's more powerful than any tax um that idea and again this is my opinion so the taxes get the attention though all right but like we said these land speculators um, look at this and the influential people get ticked off, you know, um, upsetting, you know, just an average colonist is a lot different than upsetting, you know, George Washington and Ben Franklin, who are and other wealthy land speculators. You know, you upset the wrong people, you're going to get problems. So, again, the taxes really are the big part of the story I'm about to get to. But do not forget the proclamation of 1763 and that message that sent th- that is sent to the colonists saying you are not partners in empire. Um, you are to be restricted from moving west. Now the tax are justifying the mind of the British because they fought to preserve the colonies. Like I said, you know they figure, look, you know we fought this war for your 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 safety. We're gonna we're gonna make sure that you know you pay your fair share. So now now begins the the rundown of the taxes. So here we go. The first tax we see is the Sugar Act in 1764. Really, this just tightened up earlier acts like the Navigation Acts, as many of the taxes we're going to talk about did. Um, Things like sugars, uh, sugar, other commodities that were involved in triangular trade, like molasses. Um, It was poorly enforced. So the Sugar Act, you know, really just tried to enforce things that had been laws in the past. Again, the British were kind of like loose, you know, with with the way they looked at the colonies. They're trying to rein that in, and the colonies aren't really having it, um, some people, anyways. Now, New York and Massachusetts, um, that those colonies launch formal protests to Parliament. There's not much response. Um, they needed to pay this debt off the British. Many of these early taxes hit the north and eastern shipping companies and communities. So, really, like you know, Massachusetts, Boston area, where we're going to see a lot of the story. Um, the Proclamation was the frontier. And that affected Southern folks as well and land speculators. So there was, some, there was things that began to unite these people. You know, people in Boston were not that upset about the Proclamation of 1763. The taxes, however, yeah, that's going to be a problem. Next up, we get the Currency Act in 1764. This is not as popular as some of their taxes, but it prohibited colonists from making paper money. And it made that, made it more difficult for them to pay off any debts. So that's pretty influential as well. Now we get to a big one. The 1765 Stamp Act. This required a stamp to be placed on important documents, um, and it's it's a tax that was strictly clear from the British perspective of this is for raising revenue. This isn't like trade, like the Sugar Act. This isn't like something we had before. This is brand new, and there's widespread displeasure from a lot of colonies. The House of Burgesses, representative government in Virginia, will you know will uh, say that the the British Crown has the deny the they denied the right to have parliament tax colonists kind of a formal complaint, and you start to see organizations like the Sons of Liberty spring up uh, in Massachusetts in the Boston era, and there's protests in other places as well, mostly, again, in New England and stuff because this is hitting them really hard. And it's this idea of no taxation without representation that you're going to begin to see pop up the colonists at this point still see themselves as British. They're still proud to be British. You know, Ben Franklin will talk about the empire growing closer together, Um, but they really want to appeal to the king almost at this point. They feel like parliament's run amok. We don't get representation in there, so it's not fair they're taxing us, right? If we had representation in parliament, we would feel like, okay, we can be taxed. We're just voted down. So they wanted to appeal to the king at this point, and it's odd to think that that You know, Americans looked at Parliament negatively. This is a lot of the... Alan Taylor talks about this in his book, American Revolutions. Um, They wanted to appeal to the king and have him reign in Parliament and that, that the king would understand. So organizations begin now to boycott British goods, which is, you know, you deny to buy a certain service, things like that, in the hopes that something will change. So the British merchants begin to get hurt, and there's actually a slight recession that hits, and Parliament nullifies this act, uh, the Stamp Act. They nullify this, um, getting rid of it, and things kind of quieted down to 1766, and it was actually a good move because, like I said, British merchants were getting hurt. There was that small recession. They wanted to avoid that. So all of these taxes are the result of the British not only trying to pay off the debt that they had racked up in the French Union War and the Seven Years' War, but, again, to, to reign in these colonies that have been, they've been ruling loosely to control the system they hadn't had control over a long time. And the colonists are starting to see, you know, again, we're not partners in empire. This is an issue. The 1765 Quartering Act, and now this is a big one. Don't get this confused. This required uh, localities and towns and cities to house British soldiers and improve their living standards. This would take the cost of that off the crown. This is one of the crown's biggest expenditures. Um, so towns and cities were to pay in a, uh, for the housing and the feeding of these troops, which was expensive, um, but they were not yet housed in people's homes that would come later. And now we're going to start to heat the story up. The Township Acts of 1767 renewed a lot of these issues. And these, again, like the, the Stamp Act, imposed new taxes on anything from tea to glass to paper to ink, everything. And this is what leads in three years to where we start to see the scale tip towards revolution. Um, I'm in Boston on March 5th, 1770. This will be known as the Boston Massacre. Colonists were protesting the Township Acts outside a custom house. British troops were called in to kind of quell the situation. The colonists begin to throw rocks, shells, bottles, ice balls. It was not exactly a peaceful protest, um, nor was it exactly a massacre, as I'm going to talk about in a minute. But a British soldier appears to fall and a shot is fired. And the, the British become confused in this moment. I mean, you put enough angry people in one area, Sometimes bad things happen. Uh, They fire into the crowd. Five are killed, six are wounded. The soldiers thought they were kind of under attack when they heard that shot. Um, This one, Paul Revere, will make his famous engraving about the Boston Massacre. And the engraving shows the British is very malicious, and uh, he gives it the name, the Massacre. Now, these British troops are put on trial for murder. All the soldiers are acquitted. And and they are not char- they are not excuse me convicted of murder. Um, John Adams actually defends them. Uh, he and he brings out in the trial. You know, the, the 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 crowd was more of a mob. It was not peaceful. Um, it was really just confusion. These guys do not deserve to be put on trial for murder. And I want to get to the next point. I'm one of these people that is uh, loves this time period, and I really see the American Revolution and, and the Boston Massacre makes me think of this because people will be on both sides of this. And know each other, family, friends will be on, you know, both sides of the aisle of this revolution. It's really like a civil war to me more than a revolution. I can't stress enough how proud the colonists were to be British and large proportions of the population did not want to rebel. Um, I heard one historian split it into thirds, right? You had one third of colonists who were ardent patriots, you know, sons of liberty, march off, join the colonial army, you know, get right behind George Washington. Another third were the opposite. They joined loyalist forces. Okay, a large chunk of them, you know, said, I'm proud to be British. I'm going to go join those forces and fight you guys, my, you guys, my neighbors. And then you have the middle third, who really didn't see where they fit into the story just yet. And what's what's kind of odd is that the third patriot and the third loyalist really even sometimes violently pulled at that middle third each direction. You know, are you with us or against us? Okay, so now back to the taxes. I just wanted to point that out. 1773, the Tea Act arrives, and this gave the East India Company, the British, which is a British company, a monopoly on the sale of tea. um, And they could only sell it to the colonies. And it actually reduced the cost of tea. It made tea cheaper. This was not necessarily a tax on tea, as many people think. Um, But it hurt shippers of tea, like the colonists, like guys like John Hancock, um, shopkeepers and smugglers of tea. So it hurt them. And this is what leads to the famous... Here's Boston again, Boston Tea Party. Now there's this narrative that, the, that Boston and Massachusetts kind of dragged people into revolution. I could see how people would think that, but again, do not forget that proclamation of 1763 um, and the whole idea of reigning in the entire colonies. Back to the Boston Tea Party, though. December 16, 1773, 343 chests of tea were thrown into the harbor. It was very symbolic because no other crates were touched. It, in modern equivalents placed the value of this tea somewhere around like a million dollars. Hard to say. Um, and many of the Sons of Liberty were the ones that orchestrated this, and they disguised themselves as Native Americans, um, not necessarily to, you know, yeah, you're kind of disguising your face to hide your identity, but it, they chose Native Americans for this because uh, it signified a free spirit, um, you know, and you can argue that whether that's accurate or not, of course, but I'm just kind of like relaying the message there. Um, so that's why they chose to be disguised that. Now, many people denounced the Boston Tea Party as an atrocious thing, like George Washington Ben Franklin. Um, George Washington said that the colonies will never be in line with Boston. Um, so a lot of people were upset by this and didn't think it was the right way to go about voicing your opinion, even patriots, even people who would become leaders of the colonies. Um so they felt like Boston was trying to drag people into it. Now, there was other, actually, Boston Tea Parties like it later on. There was actually a second one in Boston later on, 74. But there was other examples of this in other colonies, too. I also can't uh, leave out tarring and feathering, um, very common in Boston. Uh, they would, What you would do is you'd take a, a British official, maybe try and implement taxes or th- some things like that, and you would um, many times strip them naked, pour boiling hot tar on them. Uh, there's a scene in John Adams, you can see this, and then cover them in feathers and stick them on a rail and ride them through town. Um, forced them to drink a very hot tea in some cases, and you know, embarrass them, beat them. Um, this was not, you know, the the colonists were not peaceful protesters who were on that patriot side, the sons of liberty side. They they had some pretty extreme measures um, to get done what they want to get done. And the 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 Boston Tea Party really says to Britain, we got to get a handle on this Massachusetts, this Boston area. And this is when we get some of the problems, the Coercive Acts or the Intolerable Acts. And this is really the King saying. You guys are out of line. You know They can't pin this on Parliament, right? This is the king saying, you guys are out of line, and here we go. So they considered Boston, Massachusetts, and the colony an open rebellion at that point after the, the Boston Tea Party. So they'll close Boston Harbor, which greatly hurts the shipping area and the economy of that area until that they said that the tea was paid for. Um, it ended the Massachusetts Constitution, any right of the colony to self-govern itself or free elections of town officials. You couldn't have any town meetings at all, so they're trying to restrict the Sons of Liberty. Um, it moved all judicial authority to Britain and British judges. It created martial law in Massachusetts, and anyone who committed a crime had to be tried in British courts. Um, it required colonists, this is where we get the, the another controversial measure, to quarter or keep British soldiers uh, on demand in their homes if needed. So unlike that first quartering act where it was just like, look, find a spot for these guys, don't put them in anybody's home, nine years later, yeah, you're going to put them in your home at your cost if we need to. And it extended freedom of worship to French Canadian Catholics under British rule, which angered a lot of you know proud Protestant colonists. So all of these things really in these coercive or intolerable acts they show a lot of people, whoa, we got to get real serious with this whole thing. And I would argue that some of these moves pushed people in that middle third or made people in the Patriot third more extreme or pushed people in the middle to the Patriot side. Um, they were very shocked by some of the actions that the crown took here. So on September 5th, 1774, all but Georgia. Of the thirteen colonies, send delegates to what was known as the first Continental Congress in Philadelphia. What they're going to do here is they're going to pass declarations of resolve. Um, they'll further boycotts and they'll they'll pass a, an official censure for the british for the coercive or intolerable acts um, they'll assert that the colonies have the right to govern themselves like they had previously and they will push each state to begin to form a militia so nothing too radical there but you can begin to sort of see the colonists having that representative government well if we're not partners in empire maybe we need to to send this message but there isn't too many whisperings of fighting or revolution just yet OK, among some of the more extreme communities, yes, but we're not quite to the whole, you know, Bunker Hill mentality yet. Britain was still determined, even with this message from the First Continental Congress. And they scoffed it off. You know, we are going to gain control of this colonial system. We've got to get it in line. We've we've been relaxed for far too long and it's hurt us. So it really was much more complicated than taxation, that representation. Again, you have the you do have the taxes, right? The council representation; they don't feel like the British are justified levying these taxes against the colonies. But on the other hand, what you have is, you know, we're not partners in empire. We don't get to move west of the mountains, um, even though they ignored that. You know, we don't get to have self-governor make decisions. So again, I don't want to make it just about the taxes. There's a lot more, a lot more there, a lot more meat on the bone. And this brings us now to the events that I'm going to end with, of Lexington and Concord. You know, the shot heard around the world. In 1775, the Patriots are tipped off that British troops moving uh, under um, Thomas Gage, is the leader of the British troops in Boston, but he won't be directly leading the field this entire time. Um, they're tipped off British troops will seize and destroy arms an arms store. They have at conquered. OK, and it leads to the rides of Revere, Dawes and Prescott. Um, you know, again, Paul Revere did not say the British were coming. I can't believe I have to say that. That's low hanging fruit. Um, but most of the arms were moved out because they were tipped off. um by, by this and on April 17th 700 British regulars confront just under 100 militia um, at Lexington Green and this is an interesting story. you know I had have a professor in college that likes to put it like this you know if you're passionate about politics, you're passionate about what you believe in how many of you are willing to go grab a gun and stand 50 yards from somebody and stand your ground and not just any army one of the best in the world. A shot's fired in Lexington. No one knows by who. Um, It ends up with eight militia being killed. That's of the colonists and nine more wounded. Um, There's tons of accounts. It's almost like the Kennedy assassination, the theories on this. But whoever fired first, we don't know. There's tons of accounts. But the British push them from the field, and they march on to Concord to find those arms and and destroy them. After the British destroy some arms at Concord on that march, a larger colonial militia um, meets a contingent of British troops that are guarding Concord's North Bridge. This is where we get the shot heard around the world. Uh, a small British contingent, you know, is actually forced from the bridge and goes back to the main force as the colonists push onward, okay? And the British begin to have to, now, now they got to get back to Boston. So they begin this 18-mile march back, pursued by a large number of these people called Minutemen who were designed to be, you know, ready to, at a moment's notice to fight. There's well over 1,000 of them there. Um, and the British will take a couple of, you know, a few hundred casualties, um, but for, this is kind of a misconception for the duration of that battle, those casualties were not that great. I mean, they were outnumbered pretty significantly and they're being harassed and chased all the way back to Boston. So this is that, this is the first moment of now we have an open fire between the, each side on a major scale. You know, this wasn't the quote unquote Boston massacre. where We had, um, six colonists die. Don't minimize the loss of those people, but you know, this, this is a big, big deal. Okay. Um, and it will further radicalize people on both sides. Some people look at this, you know, this is why it's a civil war. Some colonists look at this and say, my God, can you believe how out of hand we are? We should listen to the crown, right? Um, Other people see this and, you know, they can't believe what the British have done firing on them. So it's a complicated narrative. So I'm looking at my time here on uh, 32 minutes. That's not too bad for me. I'm happy I got most of this done. Um, We hope you've enjoyed the show. Follow us on Twitter. Check it out at History Holly, um, email us your questions, holly, History 65 at gmail.com, I'd like to do some question shows if I can, with, you know, debate with some colleagues, um, again, we hope you enjoyed this program, uh, we're going to keep going with the US 1 shorts here soon, and uh, tune in for our next show, thank you for listening.